Well, this is my last chance to talk to you, and I thought it appropriate, <clears throat> obviously, in bringing a word from Scripture, to emphasize something I've not emphasized throughout the other lectures. I presented the worldview cosmology of paganism, then of the Christian faith. This morning I did it more in picture form, but it still presented these two options between which we are called to decide. And what I want to now do is uh, get to the heart of what I call twoism. Because as I was saying, the biblical revelation does not depend upon your feelings. It depends actually upon what God has done for you which hopefully creates feelings within you. But what God has done for you is an objective historical fact. And there's nothing quite like it in any other religion. The gospel is about an act of God in history to save you from your sin. And this is what this text is all about. I have given as a title, the gospel, first and last. First and last, <clears throat> you will see in a minute how those two adjectives show up in this text. But as a theme, it is so very biblical. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is first, right? God is the first in acting uh, to bring about the world. And he will bring it to an end. Now, in paganism, first and last has no meaning because everything just blithely goes on. The world is its own source and it will never really end. So, the idea of first and last is a thoroughly twoist notion, a thoroughly biblical notion that uh, ought to get our attention. In Genesis 1:5, God called the day night and the darkness he called day light and the darkness he called night, and there was evening on the morning, the first day. So we have this notion of the beginning of history that God in his wisdom uh, created. And then, of course, we have the last day. John 6:40, Jesus says this: For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. See, our lives, which are temporary, well, temporary, they're, they're finite, are lived within the assurance that God is in control of history, that he's the one who made it happen at the beginning, and he will bring it to an end for his glory. God is in control, and that's why God has the name of the first and the last. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and the last. And then the revelation, that's the name given to Jesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, he who died and came to life. In this very chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, there is a, a, a text uh, written by Paul that is, I think, the most dense text in the entire Bible. It's a sign of Paul's brilliance that he can say, 
I think it's 17 words, the entire history of the universe. It's verse 45. The first man, Adam, notice, the first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That is a description of the entire history of the world <laughs> in just two phrases. It's the complete plan of God, and we can bask in that knowledge that God is in control of life in general and of our lives in particular. But that was the introduction. This has got nothing to do with my sermon. Well, it has, but uh, what's my sermon about? Well, my sermon is specifically about these first 11 verses, and I don't know whether you noticed that these 11 verses have the two terms first and last. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What he's saying is that what he's giving to the Corinthians came from the first generation of Christians associated with the preaching of Peter. And it just so happens in Matthew 10:2 that Peter is named first of the apostles. I know this will please the Roman Catholics, uh, and they do get some things right. Uh, Matthew 10:2 says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. So the gospel is of first importance, and it comes from the first generation represented by Peter. But then, did you notice there's another term, last, in verse 8. Last of all, he appeared to me. How do these two terms relate? We have, if you like, in this presentation of the gospel, the notion of first and last. Just like we have in the Scripture as a whole that God is creating first and bringing the creation last to a completion, so this is focused on the gospel. Now, my sermon only has two points, apart from that introduction and all. But be careful, when a professor says he only has two points, don't believe him. The problem is he has many sub-points, you see, and you could easily get confused. <laughs> but obviously, the points that I want to make are having to do with the gospel as first and having to do with the gospel as last. But I want you to catch some of the nuances to the affirmation that the gospel is first. And let me say it this way, the gospel is first in regard to its power. It is a dynamic, life-giving power, and it is so powerful, it must be given away. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So Paul delivers what he received because it is a powerful message that he can't keep to himself. It's powerful also because it enables crooked people like you and I to be able to stand. The gospel which you receive, by which you are being saved, in which you stand. There's no other place to stand, folks, with any kind of assurance but this gospel. And these people, you know, were not the high-class folks of Corinth, 
They were the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards. That's party animals. Do we have any party animals here? Revilers, swindlers, tax cheats. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This deadbeat group are now new creatures by hearing and believing the gospel. And they're able to stand in this uh, very simple city of Corinth that gave its name to immoral behavior. The verb Corinthianize, which was turned into a verb in Greek, actually means living an immoral life. So you think you have it bad in Carmel. It was much more difficult in Corinth. And yet these people who had come out of that lifestyle uh, were able to stand because of the power of the gospel. But of course, this is first in importance as well in terms of its power because it requires attention and faithfulness. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. If you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believe in vain, you cannot take such a gospel for granted. It needs your attention. You cannot relativize it, marginalize it, de-emphasize it for the sake of popular acceptance. It is your very life and breath. Hold fast to it. Closer than your retirement funds your reputation, your popularity. This is the treasure that is given to you. The gospel is first then in power. It's also of first importance. This uh, is first in the sense that it is the first statement of what the church believed. I don't know whether you could pick that up, but I'll show it to you. But the gospel is not an ancient myth that gets people feeling all ooey-gooey inside. It's not a program of social justice so that we can get involved in changing the world. It is actually, of course, we can do those things, but what is the gospel? The gospel is a declaration of the act of God in history to save sinners. The Apostle Peter himself says, the gospel is not made up of cunningly devised myths. <laughs> you know, a lot of people love to do theology and uh, invent various myths or put all the religious myths on the same level of which Christianity is just one other myth that makes you feel good. But Peter says, we did not follow cunningly devised myths, but were historical eyewitnesses of God's majestic, majestic glory. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. This is my beloved son, for we were with him on the holy mount. The Apostle John says, we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. 
So this is first in importance because of its importance as a historical event. And that event is a public act in four parts. And as you go through what Paul says about the gospel, there are four elements to it. The first is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what the early church believed. I don't know whether you can sense the importance of that addition, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But uh, when I was studying theology at Harvard and Princeton, the great theory was that the early church was a big mix of all kinds of beliefs. And in particular, the early church was uh, really a Gnostic movement. Some of you heard me talk about Gnosticism. It's the rejection of creation, and it's the favoring of our inner spirits. It sounds very spiritual, of course. But it was actually the rejection of the Old Testament. Gnosticism rejected the Old Testament, rejected the God of the Old Testament. What does Paul say? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. If this is the earliest statement of Christian belief, this is a programmatic statement that the church believed in the Old Testament and took its understanding of the work of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament's prophecies. There's no way the early church could have been Gnostic. For those of you who have to face this kind of opposition, note that down. It is absolutely essential. It is what Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the first plank in the earliest Christian confession. It is the rock of ages about which the hymn right Augustus Toplady wrote in 1776 while you people were doing other obnoxious things. <laughs> Much more important going on in 1776 was Augustus Toplady writing Rock of Ages. And you know, that hymn, Rock of Ages, was sung at Westminster Abbey at the funeral of William Gladstone. Last Tuesday, I was invited to a banquet in the Houses of Parliament right next to Westminster Abbey. It was an amazing experience <laughs> to see the history there. And uh, I... I I saw the bust of William Gladstone, who was a Liverpudlian like myself. Uh, you didn't know that Liverpool was the cultural center of the world, did you? Until the Beatles were invented. Anyway, but um, William Gladstone was a very committed Christian and was known in the culture of the day. Um, he was... Uh, Prime Minister from 1868 in four different occasions to 1894. It was also a hymn that was sung at the funeral of the 23rd President of the USA, Benjamin Harrison. Well, why do I emphasize this hymn? Because within it, of course, there is a fundamental notion of 
the human being based on the gospel. And I wonder if we will ever hear that today in any funeral of any of our leading politicians. But here's this incredible notion that uh, Top Lady wrote down in the third verse. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the hymn, Rock of Ages, you see. And the Rock of Ages is the cross of Christ. So that's the first plank in what the early Christians believed. The second one is that he died. Sorry, the first one was that he died. The second one is that he was buried. You don't bury people who are alive. It's important to be able to say that Christ died. In other words, his life came to a conclusion. It was finished. He became sin for us. He tasted death for us. So that's the second plank in this understanding of the act of God in history. The third is that he was raised, ah, oh, here's another one, according to the Scriptures. So the teaching of Scripture is essential now for understanding the resurrection of Jesus as well, inasmuch as as it happened in such a glorious way, it becomes a prediction of the future transformation of the heavens and the earth. This is not just the waking up of a human being from sleep, but Christ's body is transfigured and transformed into a new humanity, which makes us know then, historically, that death is not the last word. The fourth act of this public event is that he appeared, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. It's interesting that the Nicene Creed doesn't have the appearances. It seems to reproduce everything else of this, but not the appearances. And that's a pity, because the appearances were an event that convinced the believers that Jesus was truly divine, that he was truly God, creator, and redeemer. Those appearances also were a commissioning of his apostles as they were sent into the world to proclaim this gospel about this historical event so that the historical event of sending them abroad to preach the historical event mustn't be missed here. It's just as historical an event, in other words. The sending out of the apostles is an act of God in history. And a commissioning then of world evangelism. So here we have a very strong statement of the nature of the gospel. Died, buried, raised, and ascended. 
It's got nothing to do with your feelings or emotions. Everything to do with God entering into human history and performing an act never ever done before or since. Isn't that amazing? A once evangelical New Testament apostate scholar said, his name is Marcus Borg, I am skeptical that the resurrection involved anything happening to the corpse of Jesus. The truth of Easter really has nothing to do with whether the tomb was empty on a particular morning 2,000 years ago or whether anything happened to the corpse of Jesus. I see the truth of Easter as grounded in the Christian experience of Jesus as a living spiritual reality for the present. There's the emphasis. All the emphasis is placed on our emotions, our spirituality. It's the very opposite of what this text is telling And you know, no one has successfully explained away the empty tomb, the resurrection. Had the Jews or the Romans stolen the body and then saw the success, they would have been able to reproduce it and then end the whole history of the gospel. Had the disciples stolen the body then how do you explain that they would die excruciating deaths for lies, for a phony story? It's never, ever been successfully undermined to argue that this is simply a myth, a pious fraud. This is solid history, as Paul says to Festus. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You know, we should be a little more confident in our speaking about the gospel. It is an unbudgeable historical event that has so much proof of it going about. So the essence of the gospel is it's first in power and it's first in importance and finally it's first in time. I've been suggesting to you that this indeed is the first way of believing of the early church. Paul is referring here in this text to the original believers who followed Jesus with whom Paul now shares the same message. And it's of great interest to understand that this is not an invention, as we say, of these Gnostics, that it's not a later invention but that it is the earliest statement of Christian belief. Those who can read this text in the original language quickly are convinced that 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, in its literary form, is actually a confession or a creed. Now, you know about creeds, 
Maybe sometimes you say them here. I don't know. Some churches do. They will repeat the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and it has a structure and a form to it, and the church continues to say these things to remind them of what is true. And there is every reason to believe that these verses represent the first statement in a creedal form of what the earliest church believed. It has a series of that's. That, 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 that. You know, as if in a creedal statement you repeat these things in in a series. Another reason you might think that this is early is that it comes from those who predated Paul as apostles. Namely, to say that is to say the the apostles in the church in Jerusalem. The third reason why this has to be early is that phrase according to the scriptures. Paul never speaks about the scriptures that way. He always says, as it is written. But in this particular text is this different phrase, according to the scriptures. So that's not the way Paul wrote. So he was reproducing something from somebody else. He uses also, in the final analysis, the name Cephas, which is Peter's Jewish name or Semitic name. And then he mentions all the different people in Jerusalem at the time. And so we have here preserved in the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians this wonderful uh, piece of literature that comes from the earliest Christian time, probably from the 30s uh, of uh, the first century. It's something on which we can stand, you see, with great assurance that the church from the beginning believed this. Isn't it interesting? The church from the beginning believed in the atonement, (laughs) believed in justification, believed in the work of Christ, believed in his resurrection. These were not later myths, but the very first group of Christians believed it. This is the first divine word, the original foundation of the church. Little wonder, then, it's described as the last. This is my second point. Do you notice how I'm progressing? All those points were in the first point, see? First. Now we have to ask, how does last fit in here? When Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. Well, First of all, last indicates completion. There's every reason to believe that this first statement was also understood as the last statement of the gospel of this nature. In other words, an authoritative statement of what the church believed. So Paul, you see, in claiming to be the last called, 
is actually saying that this period of history is brought to an end. Last of all, he appeared to me. And what Paul is really saying, you see, is that he as an apostle with all the other apostles was called to lay the foundation for the rest of the church from then on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, I laid a foundation and everyone else builds upon it. Of course, then that means, you see, that there's a beginning to the building of the foundation and then there's an end to it. You don't keep laying a foundation. You complete it and then you build on it. So, what is the meaning of last of all here? What are its implications for us? Now, last sometimes means least. Rarely, but it does in Jeremiah 50, 12. Behold, Babylon, the first shall be the last of the nations, namely the least of them. But is Paul saying he is the least of the apostles, or is he saying he's the last? Well, actually, in verse 9, he actually says he's the least. So why would he say it twice? So this word last cannot mean least. And, you know, as a good principle of Bible study, you need to compare how a word is used elsewhere to figure out what it means. Does it mean last of all in a historical progression? That is to say it comes to an end? Or is Paul simply out of humility saying, well, least of, I'm the least, you know, and, and I'm just associated with that. Well, actually, he is using the term last in a historical sense. Many liberals don't want that they like to dismiss what this is saying as simply Paul being humble. But how does Paul use the term last in the very chapter that we have read, or part of it? Well, the first time I did read it to you, 1 Corinthians 15.45, he speaks about the last Adam. Now, that's not the least of the atoms, is it? That is the definitive, final, last atom. That's 1545. In 1526, he talks about the last enemy. That's the final enemy. It's a historical ending to conflict. Then he talks in 1552 about the last trumpet. That's not the least trumpet. That's the final trumpet. So, really, Paul is making a historical statement, last of all. And, of course, as I indicated to you, this text indicates a chronological development. Christ died, was buried, he appeared to Peter, and then to the... This is a historical progression. And so, we're inclined to keep the same meaning when we get to Paul saying... Last of all, he appeared to me. So those who want to dismiss Paul as saying he's only least and not worthy of anything have this problem that it clearly means last. But in particular, what is interesting, and I get very complicated here, so fasten your seatbelts. Uh, 
The term last here is not an adjective, but an adverb. Last of all really should be translated lastly of all. It applies as such not to Paul, but to the one who is the subject of the verb, namely Jesus. Last of all, he appeared to me. Lastly, he appeared to me. So you cannot dismiss this term as least. It has to mean less than it's being applied to Jesus, who is not least, is he? He's the last Adam. So what do we have? Paul is making historical, chronological claim to have received the last appearance of Jesus. Which brings to an end this period of the revelation of the gospel, this foundation stone of the gospel. And then we all build on it. Paul is claiming to be the chronologically last apostle to whom was granted the last appearance of Jesus. So what does this teach us? The most important ancient creed is based upon the person and atoning work of Christ. Paul's determination to know nothing but Christ is not an obsession of his own spiritual experience, but of the early gospel of the church. Paul says, I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Last of all, he appeared to Paul. So what are the implications if this is the completion of the giving of the gospel as Christ appears to Paul and reveals to him this full uh, reception of the gospel. Well, there are a few implications. In the first place, place, we have the finished work of Christ in the foundational work of the apostles. We do not wait for additional revelation. We're not waiting for prophets to arise to give us new forms of the gospel. The gospel has been given once and for all in time. That tells us that when the church completed the canon of the New Testament, it was simply taking seriously the notion that the revelation had already been given and that these books that... uh, had been written about it, were not uh, to be repeated. And so the church called the canon to a close. And finally, it's uh, a wonderful statement of Christian unity. Christian unity is not based on inter-spirituality, as we saw in the Sunday School. It is based on the gospel according to the Scriptures. It is not a social gospel, it is the defeat of sin. This is the preaching that creates the church. On no other foundation can the church be built. On this rock, says Jesus, I will build my church. What was the rock? 
Well, it was actually Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, an apostolic confession of who Jesus was. That's the rock. And that's what Paul was called to do last of all. And then Paul makes this wonderful statement of the unity of the apostles in verse 11. Whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The we in verse 11 does not, well, it puts paid to the notion of liberals that the church was all messed up and there were all kinds of different ideas and especially Gnostic ones. Paul says in verse 11, that's what we preach and that's what we believe. And the we is absolutely essential because Paul is joining the Gentile Christians that he represented with the Jewish Christians that the original apostles represented. So here in this text, we discover that this is the confession of the entire early church, a thoroughly gospel-driven, cross-centered, atonement-proclaiming truth. And it makes Jesus the foundation of our faith. It all happened in him as the last Adam. This is where the church must stand in our generation, in spite of all those temptations of of interfaith relations and interspirituality and everything else, the historical revelation of the gospel stands to this day as the only basis of the church. This is where I want to stand. This is where Luther stood. Here I stand, he said, I can do no other. Another hymn right, Edward Mote in 1834, wrote about the gospel as a rock. And with that, I end. He wrote this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweet of frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, this is where we must stand in the difficult day to which we've been called. There is no other answer to the human problems. We have been given a solid word of testimony that comes from the very beginning of the church. We can stand upon it as a testimony of historical importance. Let's hold on to it and preach it with power and with the response of our lives dedicated to our Lord and Savior. For his sake, amen.